This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Hello and welcome to MS Momentum, the radio show for people with MS, their family, whanau and support people. Now today our radio star is the lovely Gillian, the health and disability advocate. Hello Gillian. Look, I may not be that lovely, you can't see me. <laughs> I can see you, you can't see me. I can't see you. Oh, can you see me? I can. So Gillian, oh. you're back from holiday and that was fantastic by the sounds of it. You're looking lovely and relaxed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Dunedin's weather was very was very kind. I won't have a, anybody say a word against it. I've got a tan on our beautiful beaches and our lovely peninsula. So, wow. Yeah, no, I had a lovely time. Nice. Didn't go, it was a staycation. We stayed at home, but that's fine. I quite like staycations, um, mm. and I think in the time of COVID, actually, staycations are becoming more and more what people do. Lots mm. of people with MS, obviously, they have staycations because they can't get anywhere that's accessible. Um, well, they do say don't leave town till you've seen the country, so um, I've, we certainly did a lot of Dunedin again, and it was great. Really enjoyed it. It's quite... I think it's quite interesting because quite often, you know, we, we leave where we live, and we don't actually see... You know, Dunedin is is beautiful, and when we've had um, family from overseas here, like you take them down to the peninsula, and you take for granted all those. You know, even coming down Stuart Street in the morning, and you can see the harbour, and it's like it's so amazing, and Lovely. we just do take it for granted. And even um, like I haven't for a while because of COVID, but driving around the region, it's we're really really lucky. No one's you're like. I think the middle of the country is 130 k's in or something. We're so scrawny. Yeah, you can I agree. just trip around, can't you? It's a great pedestrian city. <laughs> now, That's so health and disability. So, have you got a full complement of workers again this year or um, not? In Dunedin, so in the Dunedin office, we cover from uh, where do we cover? We cover from Palmerston down to Bluff. Mm-hmm. We haven't got the Chathams, sadly. Oh, have you? Wanted the Chathams, but no, I, I think they might be covered by the Wellington office at the moment. Anyway, um, we have uh, the lovely Christiane Scott in Invercargill, and then in Dunedin, there's myself, Gillian Adams. There is Kim Fleck, and also Megan Galloway, and they're both currently working from home, and I'm working from the office okay. um, in isolation, which is lovely. And then uh, in Timaru, we have. Cynthia McCorn and Christchurch has oh uh, Nelson we have uh, Drew can't remember Andrew's last name Drew and but Christchurch in the in the month I took on leave um, two staff have left our Christchurch office so there oh, are wow. two um, positions I've been interviewed for so in a, a long-winded answer to your question there's never a full compliment we're a nationwide service and mm. people come and go um hdc has just pinched one of our staff to become an investigator oh, for wow. the health and disability commissioner so ruby's left christchurch and lillian has left christchurch to go and work for public trust so it's a constant thing but in dunedin we have with some wood to touch we have had a full team now since february of last year um and it's just been like everybody with COVID. We're ships in the night. We see yeah. each other occasionally. You know, there was all of the Christmas leave. Uh, we had somebody off with some sick leave for a while. So we actually, the three of us hadn't physically been together. I think we did do, a, we managed a Christmas lunch. That's right. Um, oh, okay. Which was lovely. But, so yes, we do, there are, we do, in our neck of the woods, we're a full team at the moment. Yes. 
Long may it last. Long may it last. Yes, because I know there was, it seemed for a while there that there was people coming in and out and then there was a stretch where there wasn't. Do you think with all the COVID stuff which has gone on, which has put pressure on all of our health systems um, in in varying ways, do you think there's more work that you do or that that's lessened? Um, It's different. Now, now, again, this is a problem with me having been away for a month. I I honestly can't comment on what that last month has been like Mm. and it may have been hectic for people. But certainly with the previous um, lockdowns, what we noticed was people were parking a lot of their issues. They didn't feel in the context of, um, well, I'm thinking of the strike on Friday, for goodness sake, all of the medical staff striking pharmacists and, um, gosh, I can't remember who they all are, but I know the government's going to court to try and call the strike off. So interesting. People are really conscious of how stretched the services are, and I mm. think there's, they're, they're prepared to give leeway that um, people are stressed, people are under-resourced. Um, I guess the one area that is close to all of our hearts at the moment, which has certainly very badly been, been very badly affected, um, has been the home support area, yes. and that's throughout New Zealand. And I can't honestly tell you the correct numbers but i know before i went on leave one of the nationwide services had lost i don't know i think it might have been nearly 20 or perhaps 22 percent of their staff um who declined to be vaccinated so that's I know huge. That there that's have a- been those sorts of issues and and i know i've seen some of the documents actually where dhbs have been asking uh, notifying clients to be aware that if the hospital becomes inundated, mm. then some cares may not be able to be delivered and have been asking friends and whanau to be available if possible. And I know some yeah. DHBs, and I'm, I'm not, I'm assuming this is happening in Dunedin, I think the one I saw it for was uh, Canterbury DHB, uh, keeping a register of at-risk people who may be, you know, may not have friends or family who could step in. So I think the answer is everybody's planning for the worst case scenario, hoping that we don't hit it. But we all we all have to be, I think, take some self-responsibility for being as prepared as we can be and having our backup plans as much as we can. So your question, just to return to it, Val, was <laughs> um, are we busier? It's different busy. It's different busy. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, I guess, the best way to put it. Um, I'll be interested to see because we'll, we'll go to air after that strike happens or doesn't happen and whether the government actually has any, um, gets very far with saying it's illegal mm. due because of COVID, but also at any point our house, our, our house system is stretched. And mm. I know that um, for clients who are like two-person hoist or or quite reliant, you know, need help for personal cares and stuff, mm. worrying about where, the, where that um, yeah. workforce is going to come from and uh, like if if you're only getting I know the the DHB and the southern DHB are no longer taking any referrals for home help because of the pressures already on the system mm. I'm losing you a wee bit you're going <clears throat> quiet <clears throat> I think that's my voice not the um, <laughs> microphone um, I haven't um, got COVID <laughs> well I think it's it would be good for the listeners to be aware that just because of the incredible pressures on the health system. That doesn't change any of the legal framework I work under in terms of people people being able to make complaints. Yeah. So, you know, it's all very well. We, we get people saying, um, oh, all sorts of things. But, you know, I was refused service on this ground or I was told we couldn't do this because of. 
you can still make a complaint about that. But what I'm saying to people is they need to be absolutely prepared for the response they're going to get back, which mm. will be that we haven't got the staff or, um, you know, the services have had to be um, curtailed at the moment because of however, how many people were off from countdown? A thousand, I think I heard this morning. Um, that's, in, that's in Auckland, though? That's just in Auckland. That's yeah. just in Auckland. With, so yeah, when... Yeah, and when it gets when the rate gets high here, I know um, the local countdown in town, they are doing shift. They're doing bubble stuff. Yeah. So that yeah. and someone was in there moaning about the fact there wasn't enough people, and I'm like, they're doing this so we can have yeah. that yeah. long thing. But when you're reliant on carers coming in, um, yes. that that is problematic. Yeah. And I think this seems to, uh, this seems to be an issue with retention of carers, which is ongoing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, and sometimes it's well. Uh, last when we had lockdown, I know people weren't getting the keys, but the, some of the organisations had been a wee bit sneaky, actually, and ringing up and saying, "Oh, do you, do you need your housework done this week?" And a client said no, and that meant they didn't get it for six weeks. Oh, that's because we could do without it. And I'm like, "But you can't." So, no. and no. I do, I do think that you know, if you're not getting the keys that you've had organised, then you do need to make a complaint about that because. If we don't, if people don't, are unaware that there's an issue, it's that's not right. going to be rectified, that's is it? Totally, that's totally right. And as I say to, to people when they say, I want to go to the Health and Disability Commissioner, which is not us, of course, we're mm. the advocacy service, but everybody in New Zealand has the right to go to the Commissioner if they if they want to. I remind people that the um, our Commissioner is Morag, um, Mc, Mc, oh, I shouldn't say this, McDowell. Uh, thank you, memory. Um The HDC's threshold has always been, quote, was it reasonable in the circumstances, Mm. end of quote. And so that takes into account access issues and resources. And so it might be that there's nothing HDC can do about it, but they certainly want to have the information um, if there are services which aren't being provided now. There's two arms to this. One is that the the person issuing the contract will be the DHB in most cases, um, or ACC in some cases. So so there is a contract which the home support provider has to adhere to. So there'll be a contract requirement, and then, of course, there'll be a service level requirement. And so people have options if they feel that they're not uh, receiving the services they should of going to the person holding the contract, which would be in um, planning and funding at the DHB, Mm. um, or, of course, talking to us um, or going to HDC. But what I always say, whatever people decide to do, is be really clear about what you need to happen. Um, I can't change what's happened to anybody. I can't change their experience. I can't make it not have happened. And so... You always have to have this future picture. Okay, this has happened, wasn't appropriate, shouldn't have happened, but what do I now need to feel able to continue with receiving these this services from this this agency or, you know, going back to my dentist or using the chiropodist again or whatever mm. it might be. So I think you've got to really focus on what it is that what is the change you need to see. Um, that's what drives all of the complaint work that, that we do. What is it that you need to happen? Is that for some people? Is that quite tricky? Like they they want a result, but they're maybe not always aware what the result might be or what it could potentially look like. Because we're, I mean, we all have. Oh, I want this to happen, but actually, yeah. 
how is that going to happen and and what's that going to reflect on on back for the person that's laid the complaint is that going to satisfy you if it happens like that that's exactly val that's you're doing it my job that's exactly what we are doing with people we have to make it concrete so if somebody says i'm really unhappy about the way the pharmacist was um i didn't like his attitude Mm. I can't take that as a complaint. That's meaningless. Um, What do you mean, his attitude? So what I would say is, if I was a fly on the wall, what would I have seen him do? Well, he didn't look me in the eye. He kept um, checking his computer. He called me by the wrong name. Um, He turned his back on me. So we've got to make everything concrete. So we Mm. need information. So, So we work hard with people to make it concrete. This is why I'm unhappy. This is what I want to happen. And we have... We have to have a resolution outcome and it has to be something that an advocate can achieve. Yeah. I can't get you compensation. I can't get somebody fired. I can get you information. I can't, can get you um, answers to questions. These are all your legal rights. The trickiest thing that people say, Val, everybody says, I don't want it to happen to anybody else. Yeah. I can't guarantee that. I can't make that happen. So again, we have to make that concrete. And it might be, I would like the midwife to have more communication skills training, or I would like the uh, ambulance driver to have a refresher course on sign language. I don't know, whatever it might be. So we, again, that's what we're doing as advocates to, because just as much as it helps the person making the complaint, it makes it so much easier for the person complained about to know how they de- best need to respond to the complaint. It's yeah. no use somebody saying, I've got I, terrible service and I, and, I, and I want you to apologise. Well, what was the terrible service? So we do a lot of that work, getting, getting a very neutral um, chronology, timeline of, of mm. what's happened and when it's happened and why it's happened. And then we go into what the impact has been. What are the issues that are still outstanding? Well, I didn't feel I was listened to or um, I didn't feel... Um, that enough uh, weight was given to my personal experience. You know, I, I think they categorize, they just categorised me as having a migraine, that, that they yeah. didn't listen to what that meant for me. So, again, as an advocate, we're trying to help people be as explicit in that complaint as possible because that will get them the best result possible, the more information we can give. And, of course, our job is to keep that really tight. We want the summary to be very slight. It's a slight summary because... The provider, the person that we're complaining to, will read the summary of why people are unhappy maybe once or twice. They will read the issues that are outstanding more than that because they want to understand. And then they'll read what the resolution outcome is that we're looking for multiple times because that's what they have to respond to. So if we say as a resolution outcome we want an explanation about why um, the eye department did blah, blah, blah. We want uh, a copy of the protocol for cataract surgery, points or waiting lists. Um, We request um, a meeting with the charge nurse Mm. because of blah, blah, blah. So if we can give them those very concrete action steps that we want, then the answer, the response we get back to the complaint is responding to those resolution outcomes. So as an advocacy service, that's what we're working to. We have a formula. It's do the summary, say what the issues that are outstanding are, and then the bit that they're most interested in is how do we get this resolved? What do we need to do? And so that's what we're telling them. So where people say, I want a guarantee that my Mm. uh, support worker will never be late again, totally unachievable, (laughs) totally unachievable. But if I want to be advised that my support worker is running late or, um, you know, 
notified that the services can't occur today because mm. we've got 60% of the workforce off with COVID or whatever, that's totally achievable. So th those are the conversations we have with people. And for a complaint to be resolved with an advocate doesn't mean that people, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that people are happy with the outcome. It means that we've exhausted what we can do as advocates. We've, we've put forward what the resolution outcomes are. We've asked for information. We've asked for explanations. We've got them mm. and people don't accept them or feel that their people are, quote, lying or um, oh, right. for whatever reason they're unhappy. I don't have any ability to go in and make the person change their mind and rewrite the letter and and suddenly decide to do a 360 degree turn and say, oh, actually, you, you know, you're right. So we have to be very clear with people from the outset that I can't make any clinical changes. I, I don't have any medical knowledge or background or, or ability to influence people getting services or, or getting surgery sooner or having their medication changed. That's not what we do at all. We are helping people air what the, their grievances are, what their concerns are, and telling the person complained about what they need to do to get this resolved. Yeah. And sometimes that means agreeing to disagree but hopefully working better in the future than the stuff that's gone wrong in the past. So again, what I'm saying now is that is what we do with people when we when they engage with us initially and want decide they do want to make a complaint. They have to be really aware of what the the um, constraints are on us. They don't give me a magic wand, sadly, Val. Hmm. <laughs> I, no I magic wands today. Yeah. Okay, so that I mean that it's quite a process, isn't it, for someone coming in and explaining what, what the issue is and yes. then them having to work, work through what it is, they actually, how they want it resolved mm. and why they want it resolved and then that going to the person that the complaint has yep. been laid against. So now, I can see that there's sometimes there isn't, as you say, going to be resolution, but there's also that leaves quite a lot of leeway for people to actually... Um, not change their minds, but maybe look at things in a different light for it's both sides. It's about reframing a lot of the time. So just to um, go back when you said, you know, when people bring a complaint to us, I try not to accept it as a complaint in the first mm. instance. Okay. I, we, we have the two, there are four things that advocates do. We, we do education work, which is yep. what this talk is classed as. Mm -hmm. We uh, network, so we keep in touch with community groups and, um, you know, make sure people have the resources that they need, the pamphlets and posters and so on. Yeah. We support people to take a complaint either by supporting them to self-advocate, in which case we're invisible, but we are supporting the person and, and um, you know overseeing their um, documents and giving them tips on what to do, mm -hmm. or we take the complaint under our own name. But the fourth thing that we do is we handle inquiries. So when somebody comes to me in the first instance, and I've got a few that I need to get on with today, Excuse yeah. me, it's a preliminary conversation. I always say to people, I am just going to classify this as an inquiry. These are your options. And they, they range from you can do nothing to, mm. I used to say you can leave the country. I can't say that. Well, I can say that actually now. We're allowed to go to Australia. So people need permission to think it all over and mm. decide do they want to commit energy to this right now? There's no time frame in which to make a complaint. So if somebody rings me because they've had a family bereavement a couple of weeks ago, I would be saying to them, think about where your energy needs to be at this yeah. moment. I will keep a file note that we've had this call. How about I email you in six weeks' time to see how you're feeling about things mm. and we can pick it up then. So there's, a, there's an old um, adage that we use in advocacy that 50% of people need to complain to heal. 
and 50% of people need to heal before they complain. And I don't know ah. which person is in which category, but I I try to be a bit um, arm's length with the first call. Mm-hmm. I will give them information. I'll email them uh, documents and, and brochures and pamphlets. And I will say, look, how about you give me a call in a couple of days when you've thought it over, talk to your friends, family and whanau about what you want to get out of this process. So it's not that I don't want to help people, but I want them to commit to what the um, the, the constraints of what we can do are. Yeah. You know, often people come to us thinking we've got power. I mean, we can't make anybody apologise. The Health and Disability can't, the Commissioner, she can't make anybody apologise. You know, I can't sort of force somebody's hand up behind their back and, and make them say sorry. So, But what we can do is try and get the services changed to be better. You know, so by being very concrete, we think that there needs to be a refresher course on effective communication or um could you review the, the the ratios of, I don't know what it might be, pharmacists uh, during this time of everybody rushing in to buy rat tests or, you know, yeah. we can make those. We Another thing that people like to do, Val, is they give permission for their experience to be shared as a staff learning. And that's oh, okay. really powerful. And I've been involved over the years where various providers have even hired actors to be the person who took the complaint forward often where there's been a bereavement or a death. Yeah. And that's far more useful for a provider who's wanting to upskill their workforce Mm -hmm. to have an actual experience to be shared than just to remind them, don't forget you've got to show respect. You know, what does that mean? But well, if you it, um, actually hear what it was like when, when a you know a ninety year old gentleman didn't feel respected because um, nobody could find his pajamas and he was you know wandering around in his underpants, that take, that tells you very very clearly. Yeah. Um, so so it's a very it's a really useful thing if people give consent for their information to be shared, usually anonymously, but sometimes they're quite yeah. happy to um, to even go in and talk to staff. So there's lots of things we can suggest, and that. That is a win-win because the the person making the complaint definitely feels heard and that it's been taken seriously. And the staff have to experience what that emotion has been like for the person. So we have lots of things that we can suggest to people. And you can see from the amount I'm talking now that (laughs) there's no way we want somebody to commit to a complaint process within the first five minutes of talking to us. So my process is always Mm. that I say, look, let's let's talk again in a couple of days when you've considered what all your options are. Because I don't want somebody desperately wanting to make a complaint. And this does happen. And we put a lot of work in and then we can never contact them again or they're busy or their life has changed in some way. Far better that they come to us when they are actually in the right frame of mind to be able to, you know, do the work with us. Because it didn't happen to me. I can't do the complaint. You, I will do it on your behalf, but it's all your information. That, yeah. You know, it takes quite a bit of time to be able to piece that together with the person. The, the most important thing, though, Val, is getting the relationship. Mm. And so often, even though people aren't 100% happy with the response they get, and I mean, I have to be frank, that's that's quite often the case. It's very rare that somebody is 100% satisfied, though that does happen. But people, are fe- they feel heard, they feel respected by our service, they feel they know that we've committed time and that we absolutely support them to try and get um, better services provided for the future. So that in itself is a really powerful experience where people don't feel that they're being heard 
within maybe mental health services or um, you know six months waiting at the dental school or whatever it might be so just the fact that we can commit time and energy and you know hopefully some expertise to help them goes a long way for people feeling that their issues are being resolved and actually someone t- listening to them and taking them seriously because I mean uh, uh, particularly with a mess I suppose because it's um it's such an invisible disease that people aren't and across the disability sector it's like you don't you don't see people and it's like someone in a wheelchair you're talking to the to their carer not the person in the wheelchair quite often that annoys me greatly but people do that all the time so it, yes. it's it's making yeah. the person with a disability invisible mm-hmm. and actually you listening to them is a big thing because people don't always expect other people to listen to them actually well, that's, I think, the most important thing we can do. Um, just for your listeners' benefit, if any listeners, listeners and listener, if any of your <laughs> listeners take the listener magazine, oh, the right. old-fashioned phrase, take the listener. If you read the listener, the very back page of the listener is a couple of journalists, um, Michelle and Greg, who were both made redundant from, uh, I think, the Herald. I might be wrong. Um, anyway, they, they, they've got a, a lifestyle blog. The reason I say this is probably six or eight months ago, Michelle Hewitson revealed that she had just received an MS diagnosis. Oh, okay. And it's not very often um, that she refers to it, but she did, a, oh gosh, when did I read it? Probably two weeks ago, the listener, she um, she does, she wins prizes for her jams and flowers and so on at the AMP show. And she just had a sentence that was beautifully put that um, of course she couldn't attend because she was her immune system was compromised, and oh. and the and the um, the disappointment and the sorrow that caused it, and that she mm. was going to print herself her own trophy because she'd won the, the plate <laughs> for the best dahlias, so she was going to print her own you know trophy to say that she was I don't know something. something oh silly. nice! But just alert listeners that that's that is reaching a. Mm group of people who may not necessarily have known anything about MS, all of her previous journalism colleagues and all of the the readership of Mm. of the listener. So it's quite an... And the way she told her diagnosis being made, she had tripped in one of her columns, she had tripped on her handbag wearing her gumboots and tripped on her handbag getting out of the car. And she turned that into a funny story. But then several weeks later, it turned out that that was the beginning of her getting a diagnosis so just alerting readers that that uh, readers people listening to this that um you know it's all sorts of ways that an invisible disability Mm. such as ms um can reach people in a way that they're going to hopefully look at it with more consideration so she wasn't making any points about vaccines or mandates or any of those sorts of things just her grief about not being able to compete because of yeah. the um, people who would be there, so that was interesting. I thought, and that, uh, I mean, that's really good. it's really good for it for people with MS actually that more people are aware of it. Yeah, um, because it is. I mean, sadly, there are more people being diagnosed with it. I think the, it's about 134 average a year, but I think that's actually increasing, and potentially because people are getting diagnosed younger, which is great because it means they get they get on the medications. Yes. And um, currently, and I'm going to say this now before I forget, there is a survey to get AHSCT, which is stem cell therapy in New Zealand, right. actually available. It will still be to a select few, but it will be available to people with MS. And that is huge. Yeah. That is just amazing. Um, 
and it may be you know you, people may want to complain if they don't get on that list but it's it's like getting on the disease modifying therapies there's very strict criteria but the the fact that it'll be an option wow or or the legislation that none of us can talk about that became law in um 17th, 17th of November, uh, which as people working in health, we can't promote or, or mention. Oh, so, is that uh, the, yeah, that um, one. Oh, that, the again, David again, Seymour you know, one? I, yes. The, uh, the reason I allude to mm. that at all is because um, with the STEM therapy, it'll be the same where the criteria will have to be really clear oh, so yep. that people are aware. And that's, that's the basis of anything like that where it's going to have to be um, apportioned, that it's it's made very clear exactly what the criteria are for people to be considered. So yeah, they've got, they're going to have they've got the criteria vaguely sorted, but it's going to be um, it's going to be really strict, and there's going to be disappointed people. Yes, there always is, and I well, mean I have advocated for one medication for um, there's an, uh, one medication available for progressive MS that we're not currently allowed to. F- have in New Zealand um, and there was a trial and it was only for ages, people age 60 and I sort of said no but I want it to go to 70 and the drug person said no um, because they'd already had enough trouble getting the trial up and running without right. me going whack it up by another 10 years because yeah. it could cover so many more people so there's I always, suppose... that's the trouble with the health, being in the health sector isn't it is there's always criteria and there's always people that aren't going to fit criteria well I guess as a complete layperson and not knowing anything about MS at all, apart from you know what I've gleaned from you over the years mm. and various people that I know, um, but knowing a wee bit about clinical trials just through people coming through our service who have been yeah. on clinical trials, whether it's breast cancer or bowel cancer or whatever it might be, I imagine, and this is purely guesswork, people, mm. um, that the 70 plus catchment, the reason could be that they may have an increased risk of under other underlying conditions or, or you know, overt c- c- conditions, which yeah. wouldn't make it so clear what the um, efficacy of the medication was. That's just my guess. Just oh, my yeah, guess. it'll be um, more likely comorbidities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's amazing what these uh, amazing research going on out there all the time. And uh, we don't have that many trials available in New Zealand, really, but, I mean, we could sometimes people can get on the Australian trials as well which is I always if you want to go on a trial do it because you don't know it might not work for you but it could potentially work for the person coming after you well I'm glad you raised that because it takes us beautifully into right seven informed consent which is the whole reason that we have the code of rights Mm. um, which has been law since 1996 1st of July and Mm. it's really important that whatever it is whether you're you agree to go on a dietary trial and eat kale for six weeks don't do that horrible <laughs> stuff. Um, or, or you know a trial for MS you you must be giving informed consent and mm. so right six and seven uh, right five and six have to have happened so right five people must communicate with you in a way that you understand what the risks the benefits the side effects the time frames the costs potentially you must understand that and then right six the full information you must be given the enough information to satisfy your question so don't ever sign a form without a really detailed conversation and make sure all of your answers you know you've received answers to all of your questions because going in a trial you are giving informed consent so you need to know questions i'd be asking and questions that i've I've come to appreciate need to be asked are things like 
what's the percentage of success rate in the phase one stage? What's the percentage of success rate in the phase two stage? Mm. What's the percentage of success in the phase three? What were the numbers? How many people made it from phase one to two and two to three? Um, have there been any deaths? I mean, they're blunt questions, but you can see what we're, where this leads. Um, you know, if the success rate of people at, at, at the third stage of any trial is there's only six people in the trial but there were 40 in phase one then you know did they drop out did they withdraw so ask those questions you have the legal right to know all of that mm. and you know i would re I'd really um be clear and strong with people that don't go into any trial for anything without giving it some real thought about what is the reassurance that you need to know you know what what are the research findings what have been the findings to date in other countries in your age group in your gender Mm, I'm going to have to stop you there, Gillian, because we've run out of time. This has been Emmy's Momentum on OARFM. Um, thanks, Gillian, from the Health and Disability Advocacy Service. This is Emmy's Momentum. Toodles. This podcast was produced by OARFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.